Welcome to the Disability News. Your reader today is Carolyn Brown. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The material presented in this program is provided for listener interest and information and is not intended for the diagnosis or treatment of individuals. Please see your doctor or health care provider for that and any other health-related concerns you may have. We will read from a variety of articles and sources as time allows, starting with Strength Training for People with Disabilities from mayoclinic.org, dated June 4, 2021. Aided by medical and surgical advances, new developments in adaptive equipment, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, mandates, the number of people with disabilities now engaging in organized physical activities and competitive sports within the U.S. is rising. According to Mayo Clinic, physiatrist Edward R. Laskowski, M.D., Today's competitive athletes with disabilities are performing at a very high level and have reached some impressive milestones. Dr. Laskowski is the former co-director of sports medicine at Mayo Clinic's campus in Rochester, Minnesota, and has served as a member of the President's Council on Physical Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Dr. Laskowski has authored peer-reviewed journal articles on strength training and conditioning in athletes with disabilities. In his 1992 publication in the American Journal of Sports Medicine on snow skiing injuries in the physically disabled population, provided the impetus and data that enabled many ski areas to open their doors to adaptive skiing. Becoming an elite competitive athlete may not be a realistic goal for every patient, but Dr. Laskowski notes that there's a large body of research demonstrating that individuals with disabilities who engage in some form of regular physical activity can experience significant and lasting positive impacts on their cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, and psychosocial health. Key Considerations When Designing a Strength Program for Patients and Disabilities Engaging in some form of strength training can help patients develop the strength and coordination needed for a new activity, and it can help improve performance and prevent injuries in patients who are already engaged in some form of activity or sport. There are a few categories of patients for whom strength training may not be appropriate. Quote, people who have severe muscular dystrophy and those with active inflammatory myopathies, severe spasticity, or severe coordination or strength deficits may not be able to engage in typical strength training exercises, explains Dr. Laskowski. For many other types of disabilities, however, the benefits associated with strength training are well documented. 
quote, most individuals with neuromuscular disease, for instance, can benefit from engaging in some form of strength training, says Dr. Leskowski. A basic strength program typically begins with developing muscle endurance through low weight and higher repetitions. Optimal form and technique are paramount to ensure maximum benefit and protection from injury. A single set of a strength exercise performed to muscle fatigue can provide almost all the same benefits as multiple sets. Dr. Liskowski offers these basic guidelines and suggestions to help keep patients with disabilities safe while engaging in strength training. Number one, ensure that spasticity and primitive reflex patterns do not interfere with exercise performance. In patients with spasticity, Dr. Leskowski explains that the patient should work on strengthening antagonist muscle groups, the muscle groups that oppose the muscles responsible for spasticity. Number two, strive for balance in muscle groups. Creating a program that helps patients work toward achieving muscle balance can also help address overuse and injuries to muscles that stem from a lack of balance. Individuals who use a wheelchair should strive for strength in the posterior shoulder and scapular stabilizer groups with the goal of producing a balanced shoulder force couple to protect the rotator cuff. Number three, focus on proper positioning using straps as needed. Quote, proper technique as well as balanced, stable, and secure positioning are critical, says Dr. Leskowski. Poor alignment can increase muscle tone and trigger primitive reflexes, particularly for patients with cerebral palsy or traumatic brain injury, or for those recovering from a stroke. Patients with cerebral palsy should attempt to maintain neutral head position and prevent neck flexion, end quote. Straps can also help patients, including those with spasticity, maintain stable posture and limit maladaptive response patterns. An elastic binder or chest strap can help patients maintain trunk stability and diminish the stimulus for extensor spasm response. Below knee strapping can help with adductor spasticity. Patients who use straps during strength training should be monitored closely for skin breakdown. Number five, use wraparound weights and other adaptive equipment. Weights that can be wrapped around limbs and secured with fabric closures can be effective, particularly for amputees or patients with poor distal extremity, especially hand function. Patients can also use manual resistance and tubing that allows them to exercise in multiple planes and diagonal spiral patterns. Number six, and last, incorporate stretching for spasticity reduction and injury prophylaxis. Quote, because suboptimal flexibility can hinder positioning and increase the risk of pressure sores, performing stretching exercises is important. It can help with spasticity reduction and injury prophylaxis, says Dr. Leskowski. 
Keep in mind that some patients with disabilities may need assistance to perform stretches, end quote. Special considerations for patients with spinal cord injuries. When developing strength programs for patients with spinal cord injuries, Dr. Laskowski says there are additional adaptations that providers can consider. Some patients may need assistance with transfers and positioning on equipment, and some may require a spotter when using free weights. Correct positioning with straps if needed is key with the goal of avoiding shear to the skin. Protecting insensate skin from pressure and cold temperatures are other priorities to keep in mind. Patients with spinal cord injuries should avoid the Valsalva maneuver or breath holding as those can affect blood pressure adversely and may cause incontinence. If their injuries are above T6, they should also be monitored closely for autonomic dysplexia. Because they can be poikilothermic, patients with spinal cord injuries may also need to have the room temperature adjusted using fans or air conditioning. For more information, see Laskowski ER et al. Snow Skiing Injuries in Physically Disabled Skiers, the American Journal of Sports Medicine, 1992-20-553. Next, from mayoclinic.org, Prescribing Exercise for Children with Disabilities, Unique Considerations and Precautions, dated June 4, 2021. The online version of this article contains the following note. This content was created prior to the coronavirus disease 2019 COVID-19 pandemic and does not demonstrate proper pandemic protocols. Please follow all recommended Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines for masking and social distancing. And now to the article. The rise in obesity among all children has been associated with increases in health conditions previously seen only in adults, including hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and unhealthy lipid profiles. Overall, individuals with childhood onset disabilities are at increased risk of earlier onset of age-related health changes. In children with neuromuscular conditions, for example, a sedentary lifestyle can lead to earlier onset of cardiovascular, metabolic, and musculoskeletal issues. Multiple studies have also shown that adults with cerebral palsy have higher rates of chronic medical conditions such as coronary artery disease, diabetes, joint pain, and hypertension than do aged-matched peers without cerebral palsy. As providers grapple with how to address these trends, it's important to remember that many children with disabilities can safely participate in regular physical activity and derive the same physiologic and psychosocial benefits that children without disabilities experience, including maintaining a healthy weight and cardiovascular fitness into adulthood. In a review article published in Current Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Reports in 2019, lead author Sherilyn W. Driscoll, M.D., and co-authors discuss the important role that exercise can play in the overall health and fitness of children with disabilities, and they provide an updated overview of disability-specific exercise recommendations and precautions for providers to consider. Dr. Driscoll is a pediatric, physiatrist, 
at Mayo Clinic's campus in Rochester, Minnesota, who directs Mayo Clinic's Children's Center Pediatric Rehabilitation Division and serves as the medical director for the Pediatric Rehabilitation Inpatient Unit. Quote, We know that exercise is truly good for everybody, says Dr. Driscoll, but we also need to acknowledge that children with disabling conditions who are also susceptible to the obesity epidemic are even less likely to participate in structured or recreational physical activities than their typically developing peers. So discussions about activity and exercise are an essential part of any evaluation and care plan we develop for these children, end quote. Individualized Exercise Recommendations for Children and Adolescents Dr. Driscoll and co-authors acknowledge that multiple personal and environmental barriers to participation exist, including fear, lack of motivation, perceived negative attitudes toward disability, lack of transportation, availability of appropriate facilities or programs, and cost. In addition to these barriers to participation, Children and adolescents with disabilities experience a wide range of functional abilities and medical concerns. Consequently, providers must individualize exercise and activity recommendations to each patient. The goal for children who are able is to follow the guidelines for children and adolescents outlined in the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans released by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. These guidelines include... 60 minutes or more of physical activity a day, with three days a week of activity performed at a vigorous level, and three days a week of strengthening activities. The article is accompanied by a chart, which highlights a few of the diagnosis and disability-specific recommendations and guidelines for children that Dr. Driscoll and co-authors present in their review article. Conclusions Overall, Dr. Driscoll and colleagues emphasize that the benefits associated with physical activity and the health risks associated with sedentary behavior in this population are significant. Quote, although some individuals will require special precautions for safety or adaptations to permit participation, physical activity and exercise have been proved to be safe and effective for most children and adolescents with disabilities, says Dr. Driscoll. Dr. Driscoll and co-authors are hopeful that future research will help expand and update activity guidelines for specific diagnoses and offer additional guidance about how best to engage children and adolescents with disabilities in these activities. For more information, see Driscoll S.W. et al. Exercise in Children with Disabilities, Current Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Reports, 2019, 7 colon 46. Next, Pottery Barn introduces stylish, accessible furniture line. From newmobility.com, dated September 1, 2022. The accessible home line was designed to work for wheelchair users while ditching the clinical looks of many accessible furniture options. Pottery Barn has introduced a new line of furniture designed to be functional for people with disabilities while retaining the same style as other Pottery Barn furnishings. Created with input from disability advocates, the accessible home furniture line features more than 150 of Pottery Barn's most popular products, 
adapted to accommodate a wide range of disabilities. Those looking to renovate a bathroom will find grab bars, wheelchair-accessible vanities, non-slip mats, and angle-adjustable mirrors. For the bedroom, Pottery Barn offers adjustable beds, open bed frames that can accommodate the use of a lift, and lowered beds. The accessible home line of office furniture includes wheelchair-accessible desks, adjustable height desks, and open shelving units that eliminate the need to open cabinet doors. Customers will also find a variety of wheelchair-accessible kitchen tables, power recliners, faucets, and lighting. Quote, In our ongoing commitment to enhance the quality of lives at home, we're excited to now better serve our customers' specific needs with the accessible home, says Pottery Barn President Marta Benson. Quote, our mission is to incorporate accessibility into everything we do, providing beautiful, thoughtful design that makes a home a more comfortable place for everyone, end quote. The accessible home line can be purchased from PotteryBarn.com and select Pottery Barn locations. Next, from NewMobility.com, Bully Pulpit, My Complicated Relationship with My Body by Ian Reuter, dated September 1, 2022. I don't love my body. To be clear, I'm not talking about how I feel about how hot or not I am, but about my physical body, the actual tissue and organs and gooey stuff that makes me go. Problem after problem and surgery after surgery have forced me to accept that any love that I once had for my body is long gone. Our relationship is broken. The intuitive back and forth we used to enjoy has been replaced by a confusing and often overwhelming interface of bags, pouches, dressings, tubes, and more. They allow us to converse but reinforce our growing distance. For a while, I held on to the notion that with the right blend of proactive diligence and medical holistic savvy, I might stumble upon some sort of magical solution, a little bottle that says, drink me, and restores my love for my physical body. Alas, this isn't Wonderland. Instead of being lost down a rabbit hole, my body and I fight like mismatched detectives on a weekly crime show. We bicker our way to small victories every week, but the real villain always stays in the shadows. Whether it's hemorrhoids, dysreflexia, sleep apnea, or the malady du jour, I've learned to do enough to keep my body running, but rarely at peak speed and performance. I tried to love my body, and there were times where I came close. I'm glad I did it. I learned to interpret its physical signals and work with it, if possible, to make things better. When things were good, we made a pretty decent team. But I'd be foolish to ignore the overwhelming signs that tell me this phase is over. There's a part of me that feels guilty for owning up to my true feelings about my body. Whether as a result of my own insecurities, societal pressure, or some combination of the two, I've long felt a great deal of pressure to profess love for my body. I worry that in some way I'm affirming the sinister, ableist narrative that all of our disabled bodies are broken, ugly, and unlovable. But I'm not.
24 years as a wheelchair user and 11 years with new mobility have convinced me that body love does not discriminate along ability lines. I know plenty of disabled people who love their bodies with a passion, just as I know plenty of non-disabled folk who don't love their bodies. What I'm doing is being honest with myself that my body is not a great place. A couple of columns ago, I wrapped up my bully pulpit looking into an uncertain future and ready to embrace something new. I was on the mend from a colostomy that seemed to offer the best hope for a truce and possibly even some healing between me and my body. At the time, I thought I'd found my way out of the rabbit hole. A few months and another unexpected surgery later, the future looks more uncertain than ever. For a long time now, I've been living a lie, feigning a love that wasn't real. I hoped my positivity would lead to improvement. I'm done with that. Instead, I'm embracing the sometimes ugly reality and accepting that the only certainty my body and I can look forward to is more uncertainty. We made it this far together, and we're not giving up yet. Each dalliance with hope has left me more skeptical of making lasting progress, but my direction remains unaltered. Forward. Next, the signs of hearing loss you shouldn't ignore from the Huffington Post by Jillian Wilson, August 22, 2022. You may think that having hearing loss would be obvious. Not being able to hear the TV or the sound of a neighbor knocking on your door seems like something you'd notice right away. But hearing loss is not always so easily perceived. It can present itself in unexpected ways, and you may even overcompensate in other ways to decrease the effect. According to Dr. Gavril Kohlberg, an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Washington School of Medicine, hearing loss is really undiagnosed throughout the country, making it undertreated, too. Some of those, quote, regular annoyances that you deal with day-to-day may actually be signs that you're losing your hearing. Here, experts share signs that you may be experiencing hearing loss. One, having to ask people to repeat themselves. According to Dr. Kareem Tafik, an assistant professor of otolaryngology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, One of the most common signs of hearing loss is consistently having to ask loved ones to repeat themselves during normal conversation. Pay attention if you suspect that you're asking loved ones to recite what they just said more often than usual. You can even ask your friends and family for their opinion if you think you may be consistently asking them to repeat what they just said. Next, you can't hear background noises. Kohlberg noted that if you're having trouble hearing environmental noises, you'll likely want to get your hearing checked. Environmental noises can include things like birds chirping, leaves rustling, and the beep from kitchen appliances, he said. Take notice if you struggle to hear some expected background noises on your next walk through nature or the next time you're doing things around the house. Next, you experience a ringing in your ears. Quote, a lot of people with hearing loss also have a condition called tinnitus, Tafik said. Tinnitus is commonly associated with ringing in the ears, but it can also be a buzzing in the ears or, quote, any number of different sounds that are not actually present in the environment, 
but occur as the brain's response to a deprivation of sound from the ears, end quote. Hearing loss is the most common reason people have tinnitus, and tinnitus is a prevalent condition. More than 50 million people in the U.S. have it, according to the Cleveland Clinic. Next, you find yourself relying on lip reading. Whether they know it or not, many people who have hearing loss rely on lip reading to understand what those around them are saying. If you seem to have trouble understanding someone when they aren't facing you and you can't see their lips, or when they're wearing a mask, you may want to go get a hearing test. Tafik noted that many of his patients only noticed their hearing loss because of mask wearing during the height of the pandemic. Next, you struggle to hear in noisy environments. Quote, the first environment people notice hearing difficulty is in noisy environments, Tafik said. Think crowded restaurants, bars, or cocktail parties. He noted that unlike in a quiet space when you're listening to someone one-on-one, these busy places are considered complex listening environments. They'll immediately put a spotlight on any difficulty someone is having with their hearing. In these places, it's also harder to rely on lip reading, which, as mentioned above, is something many people with hearing loss rely on. Next, take particular note if your hearing loss is worse in one ear. According to Tafik, if your hearing loss is worse in one ear, it may be a sign of a different problem. Quote, Typically with age-related hearing loss and noise-induced hearing loss, we expect to see hearing loss that's affecting both ears symmetrically, he said. So when it doesn't fit that pattern, we start to wonder if there's something else going on, end quote. He noted that hearing loss in one ear could be a sign of a benign tumor. Additionally, any fluctuating hearing loss, hearing that goes in and out, or hearing loss that is associated with dizziness, could be a sign of a chronic condition of the inner ear, he added. In these cases, you'll want to contact a doctor as soon as possible so they can start treatment. Next, is your hearing loss sudden? Quote, rarely do people have a sudden loss of hearing in one or both ears, Kohlberg said. Generally, hearing loss is gradual. When hearing loss is sudden, you should have your hearing checked within two weeks, he noted. Sudden hearing loss can be treated but only when caught early. Next, take precautions to protect your ears. Quote, the most common reason to have hearing loss is because of age-related hearing loss, Telfique said. But there are also genetic and environmental factors that can contribute to the development of the condition. People who have certain genetic markers and who have a history of exposure to loud noise, like musicians or some kinds of construction workers, are at an increased risk of hearing loss over time, which makes it crucial for those people, and all of us actually, to, quote, limit the duration of exposure to loud noise, he said. It's important that people prevent hearing loss using noise protection when they know they are going to be in loud environments, Tafik added. This can mean investing in earplugs, getting over-the-ear muffs, or if you're someone who is exposed to loud noises often, You can also consider getting custom ear molds, which probably do the best job of blocking out sound, Tafik said. As with any condition, it's easier to prevent than to treat. Next, and last, don't discount your symptoms. Kohlberg said roughly 30 million people throughout the country have some kind of hearing loss, and it largely affects older people. Both he and Tafik stress that if you think you're losing your hearing, 
it's important to go to an audiologist for a hearing test. They can determine a plan specifically for you, whether that means getting hearing aids, cochlear implants, or something else. Next, from the Huffington Post, how thousands of disabled people connected over a single encounter in a movie theater by Dane Broder, August 8, 2022. Change can be terrifying. I think this is resonant and true across all walks of life. As a disabled person, I find things changing around and within me constantly, but I often forget that there are so many others going through the exact same things. Recently, I was reminded of that fact after a moment of human connection that sparked a resonant viral Twitter thread, and it started in the women's bathroom at a movie theater. As a younger person with mobility aids, I'm often stared at. I'm frequently approached by strangers with invasive questions, and I've learned to brace myself when someone approaches me, which is what happened while I was standing in line for the accessible stall. I saw her out of the corner of my eye, an older woman leaving the line and coming towards me. I went through all the possible uncomfortable things that could possibly be about to happen until she stopped in front of me. She paused, and then she asked, How long have you been using a cane? Not the question I was expecting. Almost 10 years, I hesitantly replied. And then she looked me in the eye and said, Was it hard? We often expect elders to know better than us, to have more experience and answers than us. And I looked at this woman, and I recognized fear, vulnerability, waiting to be rebuffed. And I knew exactly what she was asking. She was in the same place I was eight years ago, just before I started using my cane. She wanted to know if she was alone. She wanted reassurance. Quote, yeah, it was terrifying, I told her. It took face planning in a Walmart parking lot for me to accept that I needed help, and even then it was hard. We ended up talking for a good several minutes just standing by the sinks. She told me about her instability and vertigo, how it was mortifying and scary to have to ask strangers for help, but even worse to admit that she needed to make a change. I think that's something that almost all people who use mobility aids can relate to regardless of how old they are. Choosing to move forwards with a mobility aid, a wheelchair, walker, cane, or crutches, is a moment of intense vulnerability. It's stepping off of a precipice and not knowing what's going to happen. Do I leap? Do I fall? Who do I become now? How will this change me? I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I struggle with joint dislocation and chronic pain, among other symptoms and I started using a cane at age 19 or 20. I started using a wheelchair off and on at 21. I'm now 28, and I'm still making changes and adjustments to the way I interact with the world to accommodate my needs. In the beginning, I fought it tooth and nail, telling myself, quote, it's not that bad. I'm not that disabled. But I was. I am. I remember so vividly that night in the parking lot with my mouth full of gravel and pavement. That was the moment I realized something needed to give. I picked myself up, and I walked into that store, and I bought my first cane then and there. I still have that cane. 
But why is it so hard to bite the bullet and get a mobility aid? What holds us back? It's fear and vulnerability. Fear of vulnerability. Being stigmatized and stared at. It feels like giving in and giving up. Admitting to the world that something is wrong with you. It feels like a loss of control. It feels that way, but it's not. People often say, quote, wheelchair bound or, quote, confined to a chair because they view disability as a prison or punishment. They think that a cane or chair is something to be ashamed of or that we must live such terrible lives because they differ so vastly from able-bodied people's experiences. Yet mobility aids help us regain our control, our independence. They don't bring the despondence and rejection we expect, but freedom. They enable strolls with friends, trips to the mall, walks with the dog. They bring joy. The woman in the theater bathroom and I talked for a few minutes about that fear of the unknown, ironically, in a place where we all try to ignore each other as much as possible. She left feeling a bit more confident in the decision to use a cane, at least I hope. After I posted about this interaction, thousands of people chimed in with their own experiences there was a tidal wave of connection between strangers, also caught in the isolation that fear often brings us. Thousands of people discussing how hard it had been for them reached out to share their stories, and thousands of people in the middle of that same crisis reached back for reassurance. One moment of connection over canes in a bathroom led to a movement of disabled people coming together showing each other that change doesn't have to be scary, that it's time to move through and accept help, to revel in the joy they found, to reassure those that were still afraid to make the leap. Disability is so stigmatized that we don't even realize how deeply we internalize it. A refrain I hear a lot is, quote, not disabled enough. I'm not disabled enough for a walker. I'm not disabled enough for crutches. But what does that even mean? If you need the aid, you need it. There's no such thing as, quote, disabled enough. There's no need to prove to others what you choose to do with your body. There is only what you need. Reclaiming your body is hard. Moving through that fear takes work, but it is so worth it. I don't want to call it, quote, life after fear because I won't lie. The fear never really fully goes away. I caught myself minimizing my own problems because I'm still dismissing my own needs. But it can be life beyond fear. Beyond the fear is joy and friendship, connection with other disabled people, freedom to live a life of independence. A moment of vulnerability can make all the difference to someone else, and trying to live authentically as yourself can help others to gain the confidence to do so as well. So yes, It is terrifying to jump off the edge into the unknown, and embracing vulnerability takes bravery and courage. But beyond that, there's a whole life of possibilities. Trust yourself to take the leap into the unknown, to embrace that vulnerability, and find joy and freedom. Next, from the Huffington Post. Wheelchair since I was 19. Why don't I need it in my dreams? By Niam Horabard. Updated July 21, 2022. The internet never stops spilling over with dream interpretations. 
Lifestyle sites and social media posts claim to be able to make sense of your tangled subconscious thoughts and visions with no scientific reasoning whatsoever. I've read that dreaming about teeth falling out is a sign of anxiety, that dreaming of fish could mean you're pregnant, and that being chased in dreams signifies avoidance. Somehow, there's no convenient explanation for the absence of my wheelchair in my dreams. I was diagnosed with Friedrich's ataxia, a progressive neuromuscular condition, when I was 13 years old. I remained ambulatory with the help of mobility aids like canes and crutches until I was 19, when I started to use a wheelchair since the progression of my condition made it impossible for me to deny help any longer. Until that time, I wasn't able to accept my disability, and so I was not able to accept that I needed a wheelchair. That was seven years ago. Since then, my conscious mind doesn't dream of walking again. For me, this is unrealistic and medically impossible. But that has not stopped my unconscious mind from dreaming of an alternate reality where I don't need to use my wheelchair. It seemed bizarre, but when I spoke to other wheelchair users, I learned that many of them also dream of themselves walking with no assistance. My subconscious seems wildly selective, conjuring up recreations of insignificant events in my day-to-day life, but not reflecting my physical reality. My mind could recall the faces of acquaintances I see sitting in a sea of people in my university lectures, but not the wheelchair I've been using for my entire adult life. Why does there appear to be such a disconnect between my mind and my body? At first, I theorized that dissonance was some form of denial, a stubborn unwillingness to accept my disability. Although dream science is a very murky area, and there isn't much that neurological and psychological experts can say for sure, I sought out some professionals to help figure out if my theory was true. Quote, what you experienced is typical for people who suffer motor and sensory deficits, whether of cortical, spinal, or peripheral origin, said Mark Salms, neuropsychologist, psychoanalyst, and the director of neuropsychology at the Neuroscience Institute of the University of Cape Town. Salms first reported this phenomenon in his 1997 book, The Neuropsychology of Dreams. Quote, hemiplegic patients can move normally in their dreams, Cortically blind patients can see, aphasics can speak, etc. What he's saying essentially is that disabilities don't always translate from reality to dreams. It's a different world when we're asleep. The why is a bit more elusive. Psalms surmise that, quote, dreaming does not involve here and now activation of the relevant sensory motor structures in the central nervous system but rather activation of structures in long-term memory, end quote. Following this theory, my subconscious mind is simply dwelling on the past rather than the present. I wonder if lingering on the past is a coping mechanism or just something that our brains naturally do in this state. While dreams are often just amalgamations of random thoughts and memories, there are psychologists who believe they can hold important meaning. Quote, There are several well-validated objective methods of analyzing dream content which have been used in sound scientific research, Soames told me. Sigmund Freud believed dream interpretation was essential in the understanding of human existence. His theories on dreams were first published at the turn of the 20th century 
in, quote, The Interpretation of Dreams, where he documented his personal experiences. Freud's belief that dreams have meaning was starkly contrary to the general scientific consensus of his time. Many of Freud's theories have fallen out of favor with modern psychologists, but Psalms believes that his dream theories still hold relevance today. It makes sense that scientists and non-scientists alike are so fascinated by the visions we conjure when we're not conscious. Dream analysis has played a significant role in certain religions and cultures. In ancient Greece, it was thought that dreams were a supernatural form of communication from the gods. If I were living in ancient Greece, what would the gods be trying to communicate to me? Like many teenagers, I struggled with my identity. I was a wheelchair user, but I did not want to be. Was my negative attitude preventing my wheelchair from making an appearance in my dreams, where I'd found a different version of myself? A study of the dreams of paraplegic people found that a number of other wheelchair users experienced this phenomenon. The researchers hypothesized that it could be the subconscious mind mirroring the actions we see in everyday life. I see people walking and using their legs in daily life and in the media, so my mind mimics that in my dreams. This made sense to me. Because I was surrounded by ambulatory people who didn't use wheelchairs, it made sense that's what my subconscious mind perceived as normal. It was then that I realized how much community matters when it comes to conceptualizing what's normal to me. I turned to Twitter to expand my social circle, since the platform is home to an amazing community of disability advocates and activists. It was through the platform that I first connected with wheelchair user and former Irish Paralympian, Emir Brathnock, who shared her dream experiences with me. Quote, I used to walk in my dreams, but now I'm not quite in a chair either, she recalled, describing her movements as, quote, floating but restricted. Brathnock's husband also a wheelchair user, often dreams of using a bike, but then cannot walk when he stops cycling. I can understand this, considering Psalm's observation that disability might never fully translate into dreams. Quote, Nobody has systematically studied how long it takes for paralysis, ataxia, hemianopia, etc. to appear in dreams after clinical onset, Psalm said. But in his experience, quote, it typically takes years and is never complete. During my journey, advocates in the disability community taught me that, quote, disability is not a dirty word, and refusing to accept who I am and the help I need was only hurting myself and my quality of life. It was only earlier this year that I began to lose my ability to walk in my dreams. I don't believe that it was just a coincidence that my first dream in which my wheelchair played a central role came very recently, just as my perspective on my disability began to shift. Speaking from personal experience, Dormont Devlin, disability activist and wheelchair user, attributes this to the, quote, deconstruction of inner ableism, end quote. Devlin suggests that once I accepted who I am and came to the realization that I didn't want to change, a.k.a., quote, be cured, my dreams revealed an updated, if you will, version of myself. I believe it. Maybe Freud was right when he said dreams were wish fulfillments. It is incredibly freeing to align who I am with how I wish to see myself. I want that for everyone 
who's ever struggled with internalized ableism. But one can only dream. Next, from the Huffington Post, I have involuntary tics. This is what it's like when you can't control your body. By Laura Boyle, May 18th, 2022. It started small. I was 20 when I began to experience the rapid blinking, head tilting, and flinching as if someone had just jumped around the corner to scare me. Soon, I couldn't go five minutes without the paradoxical impulse to move while simultaneously praying to be still. Car rides meant constant flapping, banging my fist to my chest, involuntary shoulder shrugging, face grimacing. Meals were a separate battle altogether. The crunch of teeth chewing made me cringe, along with forks and knives against plates, my English bulldog snorting under the table, my Labrador retriever's bark, their high-pitched squeaky toys, the dishes being loaded into the sink. I started to eat alone at home to avoid possibly offending friends or family members. My senses felt elevated, like the noise of the world had been turned up to full volume and only I could hear it. Once in a restaurant, a piece of silverware fell to the floor in the back of the kitchen in the crowded room. I jumped out of my seat at the clang, surprised no one else even noticed it, and received concerned glances in return. Little sounds that used to be inaudible to my ears now became unbearably painful. The crinkle of paper as you unwrap a straw, the soft buzz of fluorescent light, the drum of a finger on the tablecloth, the jingle of keys, it all hit me at once. My therapist had diagnosed me with mild obsessive-compulsive disorder, along with my other neurological diagnoses of attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, dyscalculia, and Asperger's syndrome. More than once in our sessions, yet I always tried to find another explanation for my behavior. Until I woke up from my MRI in the hospital. Quote, patient suffers from severe tics, a nurse's voice said. I required sedation to be still throughout the procedure. Otherwise, the rhythmic, high-pitched beeping would have been tortuous. Despite barely being conscious, I mumbled, not ticks. I had resisted the idea for months, ever since a close family friend who specializes in autism suggested it over the phone during my original episode. We had been calling them myoclonic seizures instead, based on research and one neurologist's estimate. It seemed easier to believe a diagnosis like epilepsy caused my distress than a mental health issue. According to the UK's National Health Service, quote, ticks are fast, repetitive muscle movements that result in sudden and difficult-to-control body jolts or sounds, in quotes. There is no singular cause for ticks. They are most commonly associated with Tourette syndrome. However, OCD, ADHD, and autism spectrum disorder are also known to cause them. They tend to be exacerbated by stress and a lack of sleep. My neurodiversity increased my chances of experiencing them, though I didn't have tics as a child or teenager. Before the severe motor tics, I had experienced sensitivities to sound and mild symptoms of OCD and general anxiety disorder, but never in public. 
Yes, I needed to type the word, quote, words a thousand times or else my story wouldn't be good. Yes, I compulsively tapped my finger in the car or else I feared it would crash. Yes, I obsessively reimagined basic interactions to analyze every detail and figure out how I could have messed up. Yes, I spent hours with my face pushed up to my bathroom mirror, picking my skin until it bled into scars. But my struggles with mental health remained private, and I was proud of that. Until one day, they weren't. Now at 21, I wear Bose noise-canceling headphones to cope with the sensory overload that triggers my tics. Even if I didn't, it would be difficult to hide since I have no control over my own movements. Tick attacks are like having an out-of-body experience, and the more frustrated you become, the worse they get. Your body rebels against itself, hijacked by a chaotic force determined to overpower you. In the middle of a tick attack, I'm scared and frustrated at my sudden lack of bodily autonomy. It's like whole body hiccups. When I returned to school recently to take my final exams after weeks of remote coursework, it was with new accommodations. I wore heavy black headphones and tinted sunglasses. I also sometimes use fidget toys for tactile stimulation to help me calm down. I wear my green sunflower lanyard to represent my invisible disability. In order for me to be my version of okay, I required tools that made me look visibly different, visibly othered, visibly disabled. During lectures, I dread the subtle drift of eyes in my direction at the sudden twist of a bottle cap, the tap of a pen against the table, the professor's decision to pop a bag of Cheetos and crunch on the snacks in between the lesson. I am often treated as if I lack intelligence by strangers who witness my tics. I once had tics during a doctor's appointment, and the young nurse spoke to me the way she would talk to a small child about to get a shot, enunciating syllables slowly and asking my mother questions I could have answered. At home, my family walks on eggshells to avoid any noise that could trigger my tics. The TV is lowered and dishes are put away with great caution. I often feel like a burden to others because of my disabilities. I hate how they had to change their lives to make mine easier. But slowly, I've made adjustments to my new symptoms. I've become more comfortable talking to friends about my tics after they inevitably witness them. I learned to keep the fluorescent lights off in my dorm and bought a dim lamp that didn't irritate my central nervous system. I avoid crowded facilities decline invitation to events I know might cause an outburst. I receive extensions on homework assignments in order to reduce stress. Even though I hesitate to use these resources, afraid the professors might think it's a cop-out. I still sometimes apologize for my OCD, but I try not to. Before the tics, I used to be able to hide my differences to make other people feel more comfortable. I taught myself how to look someone in the eyes and to speak at appropriate pauses in conversation. I mimicked neurotypical behavior to fit in with my peers at school and avoid repercussions, which still didn't prevent relentless bullying from kindergarten through the 12th grade. I ignored my immense discomfort due to sensory overload. I disguised my self-stimulatory behavior the best I could. I performed my life to meet impossible standards. For 19 years, this masking led to the belief that there was something 
deeply, unchangeably wrong with me. Ticks took away my invisible safety net. As a result, I've had to unlearn what I've been taught about disability and mental health. Normal isn't the goal. By being open about my mental health issues, I'm able to alleviate the internal shame I've carried because of them. I can acknowledge and heal the wounds I've ignored for so long. Unmasking has allowed me to be free from the expectations I thought I had to meet to be happy and successful. I may not be able to control the disorders I have or my symptoms, but I do have the ability to rewrite the narrative I have been told about them. And each time I advocate for my needs instead of apologizing for them, I learn to begin accepting myself just the way I am. Next, from the Huffington Post, Coda Didn't Deserve to Be the Oscar Season Villain by Marina Fang and Elise Wanshell. March 28, 2022, updated July 20, 2022. Every Oscar season, there often seems one or several movies that become that year's, quote, villain on the Internet. Sometimes this brings up extremely valid critiques of the movie, a hymn, Green Book, but other times designating a major Oscars contender, non grata, happens solely because people feel the need to find something new to talk about during the months-long awards season slog. Over the last month, as it emerged as a Best Picture frontrunner, the Apple TV Plus dramedy, Coda, became this season's villain. A month ago, it won Best Ensemble at the SAG Awards, a major precursor that is often, but not always, predictive of the Oscars' Best Picture prize, cementing its status as the movie to beat. One of the major narratives that emerged among detractors was that it was too feel-good and crowd-pleasing to win Best Picture. Some even went as far as calling CODA, which won the Grand Jury Prize when it premiered at last year's Sundance Film Festival and has garnered widespread critical acclaim, a, quote, glorified lifetime movie. It's a terrible way to treat a movie that has been historic and significant on several fronts. The first movie with a majority deaf cast to win Best Picture, only the third Best Picture winner ever directed by a woman, and the first time a Best Picture winner has come from a streaming service. Directed by Cian Hedder, Coda follows Ruby Rossi, Amelia Jones, a talented high school senior in a small fishing town in Massachusetts, whose music teacher encourages her to apply to Boston's prestigious Berklee College of Music. But Ruby is torn between her dreams and her familial obligations. As the only hearing member of her family, a child of deaf adults, hence the film's double-meaning title, she often serves as their interpreter, navigating bureaucratic situations for her family's fishing business. She also feels guilty that her deaf parents and brother can't fully take part in her musical talents and ambitions. Sure, its plot quickly becomes predictable and contains a sentimental and, depending on your taste, syrupy sweet ending that ties up the story in a neat bow, but that's no reason to diminish it in the harsh way its detractors have. Plenty of feel-good, inspirational tales with familiar narrative beats win Best Picture. Moreover, being a sentimental crowd-pleaser isn't an inherently bad thing or representative of the quality of the movie. And Coda is significant for telling a widely appealing, commercialized story in ways Hollywood has long neglected. 
The movie's success is a huge, albeit long overdue, step forward for disability representation in Hollywood. As Ruby's father, Frank, Troy Kotzer, is now the first deaf male actor to win an Oscar. He joins CODA co-star Marlene Matlin, who became the first, and until now only, deaf performer to win an Oscar when she won Best Actress for 1986's Children of a Lesser God. Matlin has been by far the most prominent deaf actor, or, let's face it, disabled actor, in Hollywood, when there should have been many more to follow in her footsteps. Only 2.7% of characters in the 100 highest-earning movies were disabled, according to a 2017 report from the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. This is despite the majority of Best Actor wins in Oscars history, having been given to non-disabled actors playing disabled or sick characters, which has led to some truly horrific and dangerous films about disabled people. A lot of these Oscars winners also portray disabled people like objects of pity or inspiration. In CODA, however, the disabled characters in the film are humanized and treated like three-dimensional characters, thanks to deaf actors. That is why Matlin pushed for deaf actors to be cast for the deaf roles in CODA, Matlin, who was the first deaf actor cast in the film, put her foot down when producers were pressuring Hedder to cast a non-deaf actor as Frank. Matlin told Time in August that she found that idea outrageous and threatened to leave the film. Quote, I don't really have the luxury to do that all the time, she said, but in this case, I knew it wasn't right. I believed in this, and I fought. She added, quote, you can't have hearing actors play deaf characters regardless of how big of a name you put in there or box office. Playing a deaf character is not a costume you can put on or take off at the end of the day, end quote. We will stop here with our reading of this last article from the Huffington Post. This concludes the disability news for this week. Your reader has been Carolyn Brown. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please call us in our Lexington studios at 859-422-6390. Next, please stay tuned for Women's Health on Radio Eye.